Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and we are continuing our, really finishing our series here in the book of Romans for the time being. We're going to close it out in Romans chapter 5. The title of the lesson is going to be uh, um, entitled Enemies No More, and it reminds me, I'm recording this right now, right around the Christmas season. We're about to begin December. It reminds me of the uh, Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, where the writer says, uh, Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild. And then it gives this powerful phrase. It says, God and sinners reconciled. And here in Romans chapter 5, we see how um, how we as sinners are reconciled to God and how this function of salvation works. I mentioned this as an illustration when I taught this uh, this past Sunday in our Bible study, and that is that there are some folks that are wired to, um, they don't really care how things work, they just want to know that it works. And there's other folks that really want to know the nuts and bolts and the inner workings of um, how does this whole thing come together. So Romans 5 really unfolds for us. How does salvation work? We understand that we're sinners saved by grace. We understand the message of the gospel. But why did God design it this way, and how does it work? So there's a couple terms uh, before we begin that I want to maybe give some definition to that we find here uh, in Romans, and in specifically here in Romans chapter 5. The first is the word trespass, and it's important to understand that when you think about trespassing, we've stepped over the line, and trespassing is willful disobedience. This isn't just a shortcoming. This kind of sin is can be measured or at least identified as such because God has explicitly commanded otherwise. And that's really the purpose of the law. We know we have trespassed because God has provided for us the law. We understand what we're supposed to do and we choose not to do it. That is what a trespass is. The second term that's important is condemnation. So this is a legal term and its legal term is basically defining that we are guilty before God. And this means that we are living under God's wrath both in this life and in the next. So that's the understanding of condemnation. The third term I want to identify, and there's five total, but here's the third one, is atonement. And atonement is something that has to be done about sin. And the reason for that is because God's nature requires it. God wouldn't be just if he just let us off the hook. Our sin needs to be atoned for. So if this is God's nature, then every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So we see in things of the Spirit Sin requires a payment or covering, so Jesus paid that price. That, that's kind of the definition of what atonement is. It's the necessary payment for the um, sin that we have committed. The fourth term is justification. That comes up frequently here in Romans chapter 5. And again, justification is a legal term, and it means that we have been acquitted or declared not guilty. So this frees us up to live in fellowship and right standing with God, or what I mentioned earlier, that term reconciliation. We'll get to that in also a moment. But justification is what makes that possible. And it makes it possible not only in this life, but in the life to come. So the last term that we want to talk about is reconciliation. So reconciliation reminds us that we are enemies of God. We read about that in Romans 5. We're adversaries. We've rebelled against him. Um, we do not merely have a declaration of the end of our hostilities in this reconciliation, but God, through Christ, has removed the very cause of our conflict. So the thing that has caused us to rebel against God, the thing that has caused us to be God's adversary, God, through Jesus Christ, has removed that very thing. So now, our sin against him and his nature, because of that, we are brought back together because of the record of Christ. So it was really important to define those first uh, five terms, and we'll have... Uh, two major points that we'll cover here in Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And the overarching theme of that is that those justified by faith in Christ have peace with God. So Paul uses an important term here in verse 1, He connecting Romans 3 and 4 to Romans 5, and he uses that word, therefore, it's a connecting word in, in verse 1. 
So what he's doing is he's establishing that we are not justified by faith. I'm sorry, that we are justified by faith and not by works or righteous acts. That's the case that he's been making um, in Romans chapter 3 and 4. So this justification produces results that contrast very early with the results of justification we attempt through works. So first, justification by faith brings us peace with God through Christ. This peace does not mean a mere state of emotion or some kind of inner peace. Nor does it mean a state of non-hostility between two parties who are at odds. It means that there is no further reason for contention between God and believers. So the, the, why that's so important is that there will be days when you do not feel like you are saved. There will be days when you do not feel like you are reconciled to God. That emotionally you don't connect the dots. But declared by the word of God, God says, I am at peace with you because of the record of Jesus Christ. So if you have received and repented of sin and received this salvation, I am at peace with you, and nothing will change that. I think that's an important thing for us to know. There's nothing left to separate us. This is an objective fact, okay? It, it doesn't. It's not necessary of how we see it or how we feel about it. It's a fact, not depending on whether we feel at peace on the inside. So it also brings about grace. God's favor is upon the believer. We could never hope to stand before a holy God in the strength of our own merits. Standing before God comes through faith. We do not know, we, we do not now know God's glory as we would like, but through faith we have the confident assurance of seeing it, and that leads us to rejoice. So Paul is connecting our future hope to our current salvation, that we will one day see God's glory. And that's going to be really important for um, that's going to be really important for this these Roman believers that Paul is writing to. So if we rejoice in the hope of God's glory, we can also rejoice even in our suffering. And Paul talks about suffering here in verse 3. And it's important to define the kind of suffering that Paul has in mind here to the audience that he's speaking to. The suffering that Paul has in mind results from the external forces. Again, the, the, the scripture speaks to suffering that it's caused by mental anguish and turmoil, but that's not what this section of the passage is talking about. Paul is talking about it comes from opposition and even mistreatment by those who do not believe. So this is suffering that is caused by unbelievers. So why is that important? Well, for the Romans, for the first century believers, it's often it often meant that the loss of material wealth in one way or another. So believing Christ would have affected their status in the community. So how could anyone rejoice at this kind of suffering? Well, it took away some of the world's things, but it built up and increased something the world can never diminish, and that is character. When we believers die, they take, we take nothing with us from this world to heaven. However, the Christian character that has developed within us through endurance in the faith remains intact. We find that in verse 4, in patience, experience, and experience hope that will always remain intact. That character produces hope and that the kind that will have nothing to be ashamed of before God in verse 5. So Paul described the work of the Holy Spirit as pouring out God's love into our hearts. He does not dose it out drop by drop. No, he pours it out as someone might liberally pour water onto a campfire. The Holy Spirit floods us with God's love. All of God's love is available to us in the here and now because of the record of what Christ has done. So Paul uses the term weak in verse 6, and it's describing a sick person who is feeble and without strength. So when we were sick, eaten up with sin, Christ died for the sinners. Dying for someone else is not completely unheard of among human beings, and Paul uses that as an illustration here in Romans 5. There are those rare occasions where someone would risk their life for another person, but they remain exceptional, and we read about that in verse 7. 
That is not what we see with Christ when he gave himself for us. We were not worthy. Indeed, we were still in rebellion against God. So when Jesus died for us, he proved God's great love for us. And that's what we read in verse 8. So I mentioned some of the terms earlier about the significance of the spiritual <coughs> or theological terms in um, those five terms. So keep in mind trespass, condemnation, atonement, justification, and reconciliation. And some of those different terms to keep us um, aware of the significance of what Paul was saying in Romans 5. So I want to go back to that word justified. Justified was a familiar word for people in the Roman judicial system. We can think of it as being acquitted, found not guilty, and declared righteous by God himself. And Paul makes an important point here in verse 9 and 10. He said God sent Jesus to die for us even when we were God's enemies. So if he did that for enemies, what should we expect from him now that he's pronounced us not guilty? You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, think of how much God loved you when you were his adversary, when you were his enemy. How much more access to that love do you have now that Jesus has died for us and we're reconciled and pronounced not guilty? So for Paul, justification, our initial not guilty verdict was not the end, but it's really the beginning. Our salvation, I tell this to people all the time, salvation is the beginning of your Christian testimony. Your, your Christian testimony, your story of what God's doing in your life continues from the moment of salvation. It doesn't end there. The story just gets better and better. So verse 10 reveals just a bit of what that special something is, and that is reconciliation. What, who, those who were previous enemies are now friends. Our relationship with God has changed because of the not guilty verdict, and we are now free to live as God's friends, reconciled to him. Sinful behavior merits God's anger, right? When we do wrong, we expect consequence, we expect punishment. That's the way that life, that's just the natural law. But because of justification, God has declared us not guilty. So we don't need to live uh, hoping to avoid God's gaze, right? That he would spot us doing something, you know? We are rejoicing now entirely, and that rejoicing is entirely appropriate in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So with God, our sins are no longer held against us, and we should demonstrate a willingness to forgive and not hold people's, not hold people's past sins against them. And we should start within our own families. Do you see how this is going to carry over? God hasn't held the record of our sin against us. He has atoned for it through the person of Jesus Christ. So how much more do we have a responsibility to not hold those same sins against those we love and care for or those that we have difficulty with, that we ought to also be people of reconciliation because we have experienced a God of reconciliation. So I want to dig deeper here a little bit for a moment. In Romans 4, we didn't read through it, but I want to cover and highlight a little bit of it because how important it is to Romans chapter 5. So in Romans 4, Paul spoke at length about Abraham. And we should note that Abraham came hundreds of years before God gave the law to Moses. Yet Abraham knew about sin. So that's a question some people have. Well, if the law didn't exist prior to Moses, then how did all those other Old Testament peoples know they were sinning? Paul addresses that in chapters 3 and 4. The scripture tells us that Abraham believed God, and God counted that as righteousness for him. This is one of the earlier pictures of living by faith in the scripture. And in Romans 4, Paul highlighted the fact that Abraham's faith and righteousness came before God assigned to him the right and duty of circumcision, which was a customary right in the Jewish community, but that was found in the law of Moses. So in other words, Abraham found himself justified before God through his belief about what God said, his faith. So according to Paul, it is through faith, like Abraham, that we can receive God's righteousness as he did. So Old Testament saints received the same promise through their faith. 
very important to connect that together. So how do we apply this? What are we supposed to do with this today, right? We're reading Romans 5. We're thinking, okay, well, that's great. What am I supposed to do with this today? Well, there's some um, ramifications that come from what we've learned here so far in Romans 5, and that is that we are to live at peace with God, loving him, thanking him, and serving him. We are free to... We are free to love God, to thank him, and to serve him because we have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be justified in God's eyes? Clearly put, it means that God sees people as not guilty because of their faith in Christ and what he's done for them. And how does justification bring us peace with God? Well, the sin that once separated us from God has been forgiven and removed. So we have to ask ourselves, how does it feel to be at peace with God? And I think we'll all come away with the fact that now we can live in full freedom to be the people that God has called us to, to be. Being reconciled with God means that now we are able to, when we work and we labor, to realize that we are understanding the fullest potential of it, that it's kingdom work because we're doing it for the Lord. We understand in our marriages there's a greater purpose now that we are stewarding our relationships with our husbands and our wives because we have the record and testimony of the gospel is what's at stake. And we understand that as parents now we have a greater and higher calling and purpose and we have access to God's provision and power so that we can train up the next generation um, to follow after the Lord. These are all the things that are ramifications of Romans chapter 5 and our reconciliation with God. So I hope you'll join me for the next section here as we talk about Jesus brings grace and abundant life to those who trust in him. Welcome back to our lesson here on and being enemies no more, we are in Romans chapter 5. We look through verses 1 through 11, and now we're going to jump into verses 12 through 21. There's a lot of uh, real powerful um, theological things that we unpack in this next section. So we'll kind of go through it piece by piece here. But Paul traces a spiritual symmetry, and he's comparing and contrasting the results of Adam's sin and Jesus' righteousness. So keep that in mind as you're reading through this section, that there's a contrast between what happens with what Adam has done versus what Jesus has done. So why are all people sinners? That's really a great question. It's something that um, you know folks that study the Bible have really wrestled with for a long time. Why are all people sinners? Well, clearly put, Romans 5 reveals to us that we inherit the sin nature through Adam. And I will say that theologians do differ with explanations of how that happens, but it doesn't change the basic fact that the cardinal teaching of the Christian faith is that we have inherited a sin nature from our, the first man, or our physical father, I guess in some way, shape, or form, is Adam. So a sinful nature has been passed on to all people born from Adam, and sin has always brought about death. Some careful readers may have asked Paul, well, what about those people who lived after Adam, but before Moses gave God's people the law? How could God hold that against them? Well, Paul addresses this in verses 13 and 14. Paul explained the difference between sin and breaking the Mosaic law. For Paul, it was clear that people sinned in the years between Adam and Moses. And they all died because of that sin. That was the evidence. So they knew, we knew they were sinners because they all died. Even if they did not know all the stipulations of the law. Earlier, Paul established that everyone had the moral law of God written on their hearts. And they knew right from wrong. And you'll read about that in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. There was plenty of sin before Moses. Think about the flood. And it came with tragic results. The judgment of the flood was a worldwide demonstration of God's holding people accountable for sin before the law was written. The point of Paul's argument in these verses is that the problem and consequence of sin flowed from one person, Adam, to all people. And in contrast, the remedy for sin also flows from one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And that remedy is, again, available to all people. 
So Adam trespassed, and we defined that term earlier, and he, which means he willfully went against God's explicit command. It brought death to all who came from him afterwards, but the actions of Jesus have brought abundant life for all who come from him afterward. The gift of salvation came along in human history following thousands of years of human sin, bringing forgiveness and justification. So inheriting death through Adam pales in comparison to inheriting abundant grace and righteousness for living through Jesus Christ. And we'll read about that in verses 14 through 17. So here's a question. If we want to object that Adam's disobedience should not affect us, then how could we claim that Christ's obedience should affect us? I'll phrase it a different way, and that is, so some would say, well, it's not fair that because of Adam's sin, death has now passed upon all men, and now all men are sinners. But Paul's making the case that, well, if we don't think that's fair, then why should we think it's fair that Christ's obedience should also flow down to us? You see the balance there? The principle holds true for both cases. One person's actions bring dramatic effects on another, for evil or for good. And Paul makes that case in verse 18 and 19. So here's another question. Did the law actually create more sin or increase trespasses? I think the answer to that is no. It increased the trespass only by making it more evident to us. The sin was there the whole time, wasn't it? But the law shines the spotlight on it. And that's what Paul uh, basically makes the case for in verse 20 and 21. So even in those years, God was gracious and he was dealing with people in view of what Jesus would accomplish. And I mentioned that in uh, our previous lesson about the idea of forbearance. Our faith in our time looks back on what Jesus did. And in both cases, the righteousness comes from Christ, not from human endeavor. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that question of, is it fair that we have the record of Adam as being sinners and we have a sin nature that comes from Adam's sin? I think this is an important thing to think about because some have objected how it is unfair that God would count to us as sinners because of something that Adam did long ago. It's important to note, though, that God does not need Adam's sin in order to pronounce our guilt. Even if God put aside the guilt that comes through fallen, sinful nature, and some theologians do believe that this can be the case, without fail, we show ourselves to be sinners through our own choices and actions. I'll give you an example. Our own unavoidable pull towards sin would seem to be a major demonstration of our fallen nature, even without what Paul says in Romans 5. Or we could put it another way. So if you're standing in a court of law, here's what you would have to provide. What evidence can we call upon in our own lives to claim that without Adam's choice, we would have done it right, so to speak, without sin? I mean, think about it. If someone was to unfold the testimony of my life, of your life, what evidence could we possibly provide to genuinely say, well, if I was Adam, I would have done it differently? The truth is, we don't have that kind of evidence. Honest people will admit that they have no evidence, no reason to believe that in Adam's place, they would have chosen any better. So we should be careful what we wish for. If we are not to share in Adam's legacy, then by all rights, we will not share in Christ's legacy either. And we would find ourselves once again by our own choices and actions separated from fellowship with God, but with no hope of reconciliation. So I think it's a really important um, understanding to have of how that balance works between Adam's nature being imputed to us, but also the record of Christ being available to us through the gospel. So look at all the grace, forgiveness, and life that came through what Jesus did. Our part is to spare no effort at showing his love and grace to those around us. We live expectantly, eager to see what God will do. So again, here's a takeaway. What am I supposed to do with this, right? Romans chapter 5 unpacks this nuts and bolts of the gospel, the inner workings and mechanics of it all. And as a Christian, how do I live this out? 
Well, we are called to stand firm and joyful in the free gift of grace that we have through Jesus. How does faith in Christ give us access to grace? Well, it removes our sin so that we are no longer God's enemies. And in Christ, we are given abundant life. So live this out by contrasting, okay, now I'm no longer um, part of Adam's uh, sinful race. Now I am part of um, the record of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And we ought to show that grace and that love to all those around us. I want to leave you with this closing thought as, again, I'm recording this in the Christmas season. And I think of the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, just rich with theology. But you see Romans 5 unpacked here in that verse. And it says, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now we face. Stamp thine image in its place. And second Adam, or Jesus, from above, reinstate us in thy love. So I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has been encouraging to you to see all that God has done for us through the gospel here in Romans 5. And I'm also going to add a bonus lesson here. Um, I'll probably add it as a separate podcast um, just to kind of cover some of the inner workings of Romans 5. And I came across um, some teachings by a theologian named Dr. David Mapes, and he has produced what he calls the Romans 5 model, but he calls it an explanation between the relationship of free will and election that we find in the Bible. I think it's a really helpful thing for those that want to take a deeper dive into how do the mechanics of salvation work and how do these seemingly two aspects of free will and election that seem to have so much tension with one another, how do we find an answer for that here in Romans chapter 5? So I hope to share that um, in kind of a bonus podcast here for this week. But again, thank you for joining us for the Calvary Couples podcast. I hope it's been a help to you and I look forward to being with you next time.